Blog Talk Radio. Hi, I'm author and publisher Tracy L. Slatten. It's my belief that the most interesting, creative, and original voices today are heard outside of the big corporations, studios, and galleries. Individuals of courage, inspiration, and vision are seizing the opportunities to create and promote their art themselves. I'm here to support them and to bring their stories to you. On this show, I'll interview independent artists of all kinds, unusual thinkers, and even some healers about their process. How do they do it? How do they start with an idea and bring it to life in the world? This show intends to illuminate the journey. Feel free to call in to 516-453-6052 with questions or live chat with me at blogtalkradio.com slash independentartiststhinkers. Great to have you with us. Hi, this is Tracy Slatten, hosting Independent Artists and Thinkers. I am so happy to welcome you to the show. We've got a great show lined up for you today. I'm very grateful and humbled that so many people are listening to the show, both live and in the archives, and I think also through the iTunes podcast channel. So I'm really grateful, and I hope you're enjoying it. I created the show to support those brave souls who are operating outside the structures of the big established corporations and corporate mindset. As the intro of the show says, I intend to illuminate the unusual journey and to bring it to you. I'm interested in alternatives to conventional thinking and conventional answers. I'm interested in creativity, fresh ideas, unusual perspectives, and originality. And this show aims to bring you models of people who embody those qualities. Please do call in with questions or comments to 516-453-6052. You can also live chat me at blogtalkradio.com slash independentartistthinkers. I've also heard that from the live uh, the live show page, you can Skype in with a question. So I don't know exactly how that works, but if you want to try, um, hopefully I'll be able to figure it out. Email me in between shows if you want to suggest a guest or have me ask questions of a particular guest. You can reach me at tracy at tracylslatin.com, and that's T-R-A-C-I. So in the coming weeks, we've got some great guests coming on. On Thursday, August 20th at 1 p.m., mystery author Joyce Strand will be on talking about murder, mayhem, and Silicon Valley. Very fun. The week after that, on August 27th, I intend to air a highlights show. So that'll be some of the high points of shows to date. Then on Thursday, September 3rd at 1 p.m., foundress and artist Insum Insun Kim will be on talking about art and the life of metal. That's right, she's a foundress, and I looked the word up in the dictionary, a woman who is the proprietor of her own foundry. She's also a sculptor, so how cool is that? On Thursday, September 10 at 1 p.m., Dan Booth Cohen and Emily Bolden will talk about the human heart as a catalyst to creativity. They'll also discuss the ancestral dimensions of consciousness, so very fascinating. So tune in and keep checking the website, independentartistthinkers.com, and the Blog Talk Radio page to find out who will be on the show. I am delighted today to have a very special guest, Dave Rico, an author and teacher and psychotherapist. 
David Rico, Ph.D., MFT, is a psychotherapist, writer, and workshop leader. He teaches at a variety of places, including Esalen and Spirit Rock Buddhist Center. He shares his time between Santa Barbara and San Francisco, California. Dave combines psychological and spiritual perspectives in his work. His two most recent books are How to Be an Adult in Love, which is published by Shambhala in 2013, and The Power of Grace, Recognizing Unexpected Gifts on the Path, Shambhala 2014. And his website for books, CDs, events, and so forth is DaveRico.com, and that's spelled D-A-V-E-R-I-C-H-O.com. So Dave, welcome, and thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Tracy. <clears throat> I, re- I really appreciate you coming on. And I, I just want to start out by saying I love your books. I love what they say, and I really enjoy your writing. Line for line, your prose is just beautiful. And so it's a great pleasure to read such well-crafted um, prose. Uh, so I'm encouraging Thank all my you. listeners to, to get your books. And in terms of the content, I'm going to quote a blurb on the back of your book, the recent one, The Five Things We Cannot... Oh, no, it's not as recent as the others, but it's The Five Things We Cannot Change. And the quote says, I started highlighting passages in this book, and my highlighter ran dry. The whole book is splendid. So I have the same experience. So I want to start start with how you got started. How did you begin your journey, and what what has it taken for you to arrive at the place where you are currently... What training did you have, and when did you know you were going to be involved in psychotherapy, spirituality, writing books? You know, was literature and psychoanalysis a major presence in your home when you were growing up? There's a lot of poetry in your writing. Was there a lot of poetry in your home? What did you think you would be? And so start young and lead up to now. My home life was basically working class people. And we are an Italian immigrant family. I am second generation. There was not a lot of accent on literature and poetry. I just took to it in my school experience. And uh, I can't account for what I know based on schools that I went to although, of course, they all prepared me for who I am in the moment. My writing began when I was teaching classes at Santa Barbara City College Adult Education, and I started assembling notes to give out to the students to help them get a clearer sense of our topics And at one point, I decided to expand those notes and put them together as a little book that they could then use. That became my first book, which is called How to Be an Adult. And then um, I just enjoyed the process so much, I continued writing. I believe that whatever wisdom I have doesn't come from me. I feel that it comes through me, uh, not as if I'm a a, uh, channel or something, but as a grace that I've been given some type of grace to understand 
excuse me, understand humanness, both psychologically and spiritually, and to be able to present it in a way that does make sense. Uh, One part of my background that's probably helpful along these lines is that I attended a Catholic seminary and I was ordained a priest in 1966. Later, I left the active ministry and got married. I have a son, age 43 now, and uh, I still consider myself doing a kind of ministry, which is a service to many people now, since I have the good fortune of being able to reach people through the books rather than just in my classes or congregation. And uh, gradually, I have put together a kind of framework that helps people understand their experience and integrate it into realizations about their calling in the world. And I understand our calling to be using whatever unique talents you have to do the best you can to contribute to a world that will be characterized by justice, peace, and love. And what helped me along those lines was finding Buddhism in 1971. And since then, I have um, been close to the Dharma and Buddhist practices. So that's how it all came together and how I wound up at Shambhala, which is, of course is, has a Buddhist orientation as my publisher. How, how Some did of you my come... books are from Shambhala and, and the others, the ones that are on Catholic themes, are from Paulist Press, which is a Catholic publisher. <clears throat> Dave? How did you come yeah. to leave the priesthood? Did you have like an awakening? Because I think, I'm guessing it must be a calling when you decide to enter the priesthood. So then, you know, are you not called anymore? Is it a different calling? Did a light bulb go on over your head? And then how do you go from the priesthood to becoming a practicing Buddhist? Well, I would say um, leaving the priesthood was a matter of falling in love with my then future wife. And the way the church is set up, you can't do both of those together, as you know. So uh, that meant leaving the official traditional ministry, but I never did forsake my calling to be of service. So my very next... um, career was as a psychologist. Now I'm a uh, psychotherapist here in California and also a teacher. So those two, the psychotherapy and the teaching and the writing, those three have become the way I express my original calling. So I feel my calling has been the same from the beginning, which is somehow to offer service, and now I'm doing it in a different way. 
How do you integrate Catholicism and Buddhism? I've given that a lot of thought, and I have two ways of seeing it. One is that coming from an Italian background, it's well-nigh impossible to forsake your religious past since it's so tied into your experience of family, which is primary to us. So that's one part of it, and at least for me, not necessarily for everybody. And the other uh, part of it, which is much deeper, is that once I found the Jungian approach, which has to do with recognizing the various archetypes, the rich, eternal, universal themes in human experience, all of which was explained even more clearly by Joseph Campbell, when I put to, who also is a who also was a Catholic, when I put those two together, Jung and Campbell, I realized that our Catholic religion has those same universal archetypes that are universally acknowledged. So that helped me make more sense of it. So I held on to that part of it and to the comfort that goes with it since it's related to my family past. Then when Buddhism came along, I realized, oh, this offers uh, an even deeper entry into what spirituality could be about because it recommends a universal loving-kindness practice and a mindfulness practice in which you go more deeply into the silence inside. And so I just kept putting those together and hearing Thomas Merton's wonderful statement made it all uh, feel like it could make sense. He said, I am a Catholic Buddhist and a Buddhist Catholic. Mm. My books do not um, bring all this into... I mean, I don't go into all this in my ordinary self-help books. I only talk about these themes in my uh, specifically Catholic Christian books, which are the you know the ones called um, "How to Be an Adult in Faith," uh, "The Sacred Heart of the World," "When Catholic Means Cosmic." So in those books, I talk about these themes that you and I are talking about right now. But in all the other ones, I steer clear of all that and just uh, talk about the psychological and spiritual integration of the various themes. I, I just want to ask, how did Buddhism come along? Was there, did you read a book? Did you meet oh, a person? Yeah. The way it came along is um, I was in Boston, living in the Boston area, 1971 or so, and I was introduced by a friend to a book called Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism 
by Trungpa Rinpoche, who is a who was a Tibetan Buddhist teacher, and that book was published by Shambhala. Anyway, I was very fascinated with it, and it just brought me into a whole new realm of thinking and being, especially since it's about Buddhist psychology, so it fit perfectly with my line of work at the time. And from then, I just kept studying the Dharma and doing the various practices, and I continue to do so. I've made a vow to study the Dharma for the rest of my life. And I can't think of anything more wonderful than that. So um, so that's how it all came in, just through that one book. And then when I had written, you know, uh, my book called Shadow Dance, I decided to send it to Shambhala since that was where it all began. Mm-hmm. And they accepted it. And then from there, we've had a very nice relationship. That's cool. I have this question written down for a little later in our discussion, but I'm going to bring it up right now. And that's this, what do you say to people who don't believe in the spiritual dimension of life? And um, in the recording, Making Love Last, you say something about how we can't live a whole life with only what Freud offers. In order to live a whole life, we also need what Buddha offers. I, But I personally find that there is a a Judeo-Christian group, often well-educated, who take nihilism as the truth, the one truth, and the only truth, and that people have lost sight of both imminence and transcendence, and they they have this kind of attitude that they're superior and more sophisticated as a result. So how do you negotiate that? Well, first of all, um, I see it as a kind of bias because it's so one-sided, and I think what you're describing is a kind of, say, humanistic materialism. Yes, yes, exactly. In which, yeah, we want to be humane in the world and we want to fulfill our human potential, but we don't believe that there's uh, accompaniment or help or some other power that is bigger than ourselves, that is helping us along. It is that so I do. mindset in New York City. It's like an infection. It's very hard to get away from it. Well, the way I uh, see it is that, first of all, it's understandable given all the things that have happened in the world. Uh, when you s- imagine God to be this uh, kind of masculine big guy in the sky who is supposed to intervene and help us. Just the Holocaust itself was proof enough that there is no such person. And so I think that made a big difference in the collective ability to hold on to the old belief in God But in our new way of seeing it, which is a way that is not accepted by nihilistic or atheistic people, it doesn't have to be a guy in the sky. It could be a deep um, reality that is in us and in the whole universe. And I 
usually describe it this way. Something we know not what is always lovingly at work. We know not how to make us more than we are now and to make the world more than it is yet. Yet, That something is the equivalent of God or Holy Spirit or divinity. You could also call it um, the universe. You could call it our, our, our deepest inner self. George Lucas but called it the force? The force, yes. Yeah, the force would be like what, you, what we saw in Star Wars. Um, it's um, just a power that's what in the uh, in the twelve-step programs is called a higher power. That simply means a higher power than ego, a higher power than than what the human mind can construe. So I do believe that there is such a power as that, and I have a sense of that power from time to time, not all the time. And uh, it's it just feels um, kinder to myself and to the world that there is such a force. And that could prejudice me, but it just no longer matters to me whether it's there or not. I just have the sense of it as there, and that's enough for me. So I don't need a proof of it is what I mean. Mm-hmm. So I try to explain in the in my writing and teaching that you don't have to have the old religious view, but your life is certainly enriched when there's more going on than just what your ego can muster. And so that's what I meant by Freud and psychology can help us in many ways but he doesn't help us over the top of the ladder into this other realm that has been described by mystics and poets and that uh, can't be proven and therefore is not accepted by materialists. But um, it's certainly a wonderful, colorful option. So I'm glad I did originally have it through religion and now have it through spirituality. But as far as having other people have it, all all we can do is what we're doing right this minute, which is talk about our experience of it. We can't convince anybody to go there. And the final thing I would say about it is if we really believe that spirituality is based on grace rather than logic, it stands to reason that we can't convince someone of the spiritual world. It has to come to him as a grace. It's it's just a an awakening, a realization, a sudden uh, turning on of the light bulb. We can't make it happen. We can hope that it happens. We can say something that might move in that move someone in that direction 
but ultimately it all happens through grace. So that's another reason to let ourselves be okay with the fact that some people don't see it. I mean, they just haven't said yes to that grace yet. Mm -hmm. That's how I look at it. That's that's great. Um, The only comment I have is that for me, I've always... The separation between grace and logic feels artificial, but I don't I don't think how do you define grace? Grace grace I define in three ways. First, it's a gift. It's not based on effort and you can't talk your way into it through logic. So, and I'll give an example of this after. So first of all, it's a gift. This gift comes from something which we can't fully define, although some people could call it God, that is definitely beyond ourself. It's beyond our own making, and it's beyond what nature can offer. It comes to us from a realm that defies logic and that seems extraordinary. It comes comes to us from uh, a realm that we're not usually in touch with. And third, this grace, this gift, which comes from beyond ourselves, has as its purpose to be of some benefit to us and others. So, for instance... Let's say you, in my example, uh, 1971, I read that particular book. That turned me on to Buddhism. From there, from that point of finding Buddhism, I moved into a deeper sense of who I am in the world, of what the world is about, of what spirituality is, it led me to understand my commitment to nonviolence in a deeper way. I made a vow to Buddha never to retaliate in any form. All of these things helped me be a better person. I trace it back to finding Buddhism. That was the grace. I didn't make it happen. It came from beyond myself, and it certainly has been of benefit. So this is what I mean by grace. um, And everybody has grace experiences, you know, all the time. I mean, if you really pay attention, like strange coincidences, uh, interesting, important people that you meet up with who help you, move you along on a certain path, uh, just happens in many ways. You talk in a lot in How to Be an Adult, and you mentioned some of your other books. I, I think I own a lot of them, uh, which my daughter comments on that. And you talk a lot about not being vengeful and not exacting revenge. How did you come to that? I mean, I just I found there have been some terribly and horribly revengeful people in my life, and I've elicited a lot of that from people. And it, I think only because it came back at me, with such virulence and toxicity did I decide 
I didn't want to be that way. But I had to see it and acted towards me. Did you have a similar experience or was it more intellectual? Uh, That's a really good question and um, I'm happy to answer. First of all, being brought up Italian, it's almost as if vendetta or revenge was like a sacrament. It was a necessary (laughs) ritual if you are ever going to have self-respect. Then I saw the, read The Godfather and saw the films. And I realized, oh, this is exactly what I was brought up with. And this is a street gangster mentality. And I'm practicing revenge all over the place, even in relationships. And all my connection to Catholicism did not free me from that deep inclination. And so one day I just uh, was in a Buddhist temple and I looked at the statue and I said, and this was a grace because I didn't plan to say it, just came out of nowhere, somewhere from beyond myself. I looked at Buddha's face and I said, I vow never again to retaliate in any form, not by word, thought, or deed. And I may still feel like I want to retaliate, but I I just will never act on it. And once I made that vow, and I have kept it ever since, this was like 20 years ago, uh, I liked myself more. So that's when I started getting the idea that uh, revenge is part of our dark side, our shadow side. It's not a form of justice. Justice is in reconciliation, transformation. And uh, it changed my whole view. And this was a very, very big deal because uh, it was the opposite of my upbringing. Yeah, if it's woven that deeply into your heritage and your cultural being, that's a tough one to extricate. Very much so. No, no, let me make it very clear. I've totally not extricated it. I've only stopped doing it. I I think of retaliation all the time. That will never go. (laughs) But I will never act on it. But you said you're trying to not be vengeful in thought, also, not deed and word. I'm having a lot of trouble with being vengeful in thought because there are people I still wish that a piano would drop out of a window and fall on their head. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, No, when I said thought, I meant plan. Okay. Think up a plan. (laughs) No, I mean, you can't prevent yourself... I remember a saying in the seminary, which I've always remembered, and I think it makes perfect sense. They said, remember that any bird can land on your head, but it's up to you if they make a nest in your hair. You know, they were talking about, you know, you could have temptation thoughts, but you don't want to entertain them. 
anyway, that's the way I look at it. You can you'll always think of retaliation, but you no no longer have to plan it. Or certainly I carry it out. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that was just my own that's an example of a grace. And how do you entice grace into your life? It can't be enticed because it's a free gift. The only thing you can do is remain open to it. And my way of being open to it is uh, also also something I found from Buddhism. You see, in uh, in uh, Buddhist understanding, nothing bad can happen to you because everything that happens equally offers an opportunity for mindfulness and loving kindness. So even if people hurt or betray you in a relationship, that is a teaching. That is an invitation to love more, to show more compassion toward yourself and those who have hurt you. And I put this together with the... Uh, with the gospel teaching, Sermon on the Mount, do good to those who hate you, love your enemies, pray for those who mistreat you. Put that together with the Buddhist view of loving kindness. So now when things happen to me, no matter how negative they are, no matter how people might hurt or disappoint or or betray me in some way, I, I've i come to see any of that as a calling to respond in a way that has integrity and loving kindness rather than the street style of do as you've been done by. I've even let go of believing that... Um, what goes around comes around. I've changed that in my own mind to may what goes around come back around and help us all. Mm. So gradually doing all these practices and reconfiguring of the way the world works, I believe I have found the path toward more love and more wisdom in my life. And that path leaves you open to grace. Because you said you can't that, entice yeah, grace. Yeah, and that's what you I meant by open. openness. Yeah, that's the openness to grace. And, and the other part of it, of course, is um, is in the, the book, um, The Five Things We Cannot Change, that that we face everything that happens to us with an unconditional yes. We say yes to the things we can't change. And we say, okay, what do I do now to the things we can change? Try to have the wisdom to know the difference. Um, That style of saying yes to the way the world works, while at the same time trying to change things 
for the better whenever we can has helped me a lot. I would say that's the I would say that practice of the unconditional yes has been the best and most profitable personally profitable practice I've ever done. In the power of grace, discussing grace and effort, which is a particular dilemma of mine, you write, it's up to us to live into it by our own openness to what comes next. And then in other books, you write about saying yes to life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes to the, the, especially the five givens of life, which are the ones, you know, in the book you mentioned. Uh, one being everything changes and ends things do not always mm-hmm. go according to plan life is not always fair pain is part of life and number five people are not loving and loyal all the time exactly so when you say yes to those five you have a much happier life because <laughs> you're yeah. sitting in the saddle in the direction the horse is going that's that's the direction of the horse of humanity those five things He's not headed toward, oh, everything's going to stay the same for me. He's not headed toward, oh, everybody's going to like me. He's not, and so forth. He's not headed toward the opposite. He's headed toward the, the five things you just read. Well, I think you have to kind of live some time. I don't know, maybe some people are born knowing these truths or accepting them when they're young, but I don't know, most of the 20-year-olds I meet, they just don't get these five. Maybe they get one or two of them. But I know that the people are not loving and loyal all the time. I got that when I realized I wasn't loving and loyal all the time. Hmm. Well, that's a very honest statement. I think it's true of all of us. You know, and life is not always fair. So that fair. shows us that it shows us that our calling is to do all we can to reverse that. Well, I agree. I mean, I think even people who you know, I've been on a growth path my entire life, but even with that, there are just moments when, you know, my best sucks. <laughs> That's the bottom line. <laughs> so tell us about, going back to kind of the, the other books that are the more the self-help books, tell us about the five A's and how did you come up with them? Because I love those as a way of thinking about love. The five A's refers to um, attention, acceptance, appreciation, affection shown physically, and allowing. And the way I came up with them is taking myself all the way back to the beginning of my life and asking myself, what did you really need from your parents? And I came up with those five I happen to notice they're all beginning with the letter A. So I call them the five A's. Then, as I stared at them, I said to myself, but David, this is what you looked for in your adult relationships too. You wanted a marriage in which you would receive attention, acceptance, appreciation, affection, and allowing. Then I said, wait a minute, David, this goes both ways. You were supposed to give those too. 
Then I got it. I said, oh, so intimacy must mean giving and receiving those same five A's back and forth with the same person. And they also are the original needs you had in childhood. So it all came together for me that we humans have those five needs all our lives. First from our parents, then from our relationships, and all the time from ourselves. That we were supposed to pay attention to ourselves, accept ourselves, you know, give those five A's to ourselves also. And I felt really comfortable with it, with this realization when I presented it in my classes. Everything I have in any of my books, I first present in classes so that I can get like 30 to 50 people responding and asking questions. That helps me clarify and make sure it makes sense. Nothing in any of the books is just for me. So... Uh, When everybody seemed to like the whole idea, I put it into my book, which is called How to Be an Adult in Relationships. And I also see those five A's as the definition of presence. Like, how are you really present to someone? You're present when you're paying attention, accepting, and so forth. Well, since I read that. Came to it. So since I read them, I've used them as a conscious way to kind of gauge, you know, am I doing this with my little daughter? Am I doing this with my husband? Am I doing this with my close friends? I've been, it's given me a way to kind of, you know, a cheat sheet. It's like a cheat sheet. And, um, you know, when you play poker, you know, when I was a kid, we would play poker and if friends came over and they didn't know how, we'd write them out a cheat sheet, which is the order of hands. So mm-hmm. this is kind of a cheat sheet for love. It's like if you're doing these things, you're going to create something really good. Yes. That's a great way to put it. I like that cheat sheet idea. You know, like can I step up to the plate in these five ways? If I can, then I'm really present as a loving person. And can I step up this way for myself? Well, I think a lot of people, at least I know I, you know, had the intention to be a loving, present person, but those five A's kind of gave me um, the the manual for how to do it. This is, you know, a guidebook, mm. which was really, oh, well, really useful in relationship. I'm glad that happened. So what is grieving and why is it important? Since the very first given of life is that everything changes and ends, it would stand to reason that we would have a kind of capacity in ourselves to deal with endings. Not only endings, but losses of any kind, including losses that occurred in childhood when we lost out on receiving those five A's. So fortunately, Mother Nature equipped us to be able to handle our losses, disappointments, endings, 
by giving us the ability to grieve. And by grieving, I mean basically three feelings. You're sad about what you lost or missed out on. You're angry that it happened that way. And you're afraid that you'll never be able to make up for it. When you go through those three feelings over and over again, and everybody does it in his or her own way, and you can't make it happen, you just notice when it happens and let it happen. When you do that over and over again, you start to let go of resentment about how you were cheated, and you accept the central fact of Buddhism, which is impermanence, and you say to yourself, oh, okay, it's an impermanent world and everything is going to be coming and going, not just staying. So this grieving is helping me deal with that. And as I keep dealing with it, I let go more and more of any um, resentment, need to retaliate, um, belief that it's all unfair, and I just settle into it as the way it is here on this planet. We're going to have a lot of losses, and thank goodness we have a way of dealing with them. And when all that happens, I'm able to get on with my life rather than be stuck in the past. So how do so people that's how come grief fits into the work. And how do people come back from, say, despair at the very core, from those sort of profound and shattering losses? The despair happens when you give up the inner capacity to deal with changes and losses. So instead of calling upon this ability to mourn, you just give up on that and the process that it takes you through that gets you through it. You give give up on that and uh, you lose your hope, shall we say. And... Uh, then you wind up in a kind of very stuck position. Well, what if it's people that you consider absolutely essential to your life? How, how, do, how do people resolve that kind of loss? Well, the way I look at it is that there are certain... That when you sign on for this, what Freud, Freud invented the word grief work, because he said it was a, one of it's part of your psychological work to grieve your losses. Okay, so when you embark on this grief work, one of the givens is that some losses, some painful things that you have gone through, are so big that they are inconsolable. So you won't wind up just feeling like it is now resolved and I'm getting on with my life. There are some events 
as Emily Dickinson says, so huge, so hopeless to conceive that we can't let go of them fully no matter how much grieving we do. And that's what I call the element of inconsolability. And how do people handle that? How do you live a whole life when there's that, uh, say, a kernel of inconsolability running through your whole soul? This is where you you go to your stillness. You go to your, you know, be still and know. You go to your acceptance of the given that um, this is as far as I'm going to get with this. I need to learn to live with this. And I let it, I hold it no longer with resentment, but with acceptance. What Tara Brock calls radical acceptance. When I come from that radically accepting place, I start to notice that I can hold it within me without it being a disruptive presence inside me. And it's, it's sort of like shrapnel. Mm-hmm. After the war, you go to the doctor and he says, well, you have x-ray shows you have shrapnel in there. And you say, well, are you going to remove it surgically? He says, no, no, just leave it there. As long as it's not bothering you, we just leave it right where it is. That's the idea of, that's how this would work, that there are certain things that shouldn't be in you, but they are, and, and but they're also, they don't really have to harm you. So leave well enough alone. Also, my other part of this is, this is what makes us people of depth, that we don't clear everything up, that we don't have everything down pat, that we don't... Um, have a one, two, three solution that things do remain up in the air for us at times. So that's how I would work with the inconsolability. In another poem by Emily Dickinson, she talks about grieving. And it's interesting because she uses the phrase, after describing the grief and how she, you know, try to let go of it. She says, it's better now, almost peace. Mm. See, she won't say, it's better, it's peace, Mm P-E-A-C-E. She says, almost. In other words, she's satisfying herself that with an almost. That is a highly adult and spiritual enterprise. To Rather than it has to be total peace. To accept that you're not going to resolve certain things fully, but you'll get exactly. to an almost peace with them. That's yeah, interesting. Exactly. Yeah. I consider that much more adult. Why? Because the adult has the the bandwidth of human experience that can include an almost rather than everything is now taken care of. Interesting. Even if you went to the doctor and and he's uh, for your checkup and the doctor says, oh yeah, you're fine, no problem. 
I mean, obviously, everybody has some little thing going on inside that the doctor hardly didn't even notice. I mean, nobody's in total, absolute, perfect health. Mm-hmm. You follow what I mean? And, yeah. But so what? <laughs> we don't need to be in total, perfect health. We survive pretty well just as we are. Interesting. And that would apply psychologically. So here's a question that comes out of some experiences I've had, which is, in your framework, how do you interact with people who see you only as a needs-gratifying object, who do not see you at all as a human being? And please forgive the lingo, because one of the things I love about your books is there's no lingo, there's no jargon whatsoever. And I, I just love that about them, but I really didn't know how else to describe it. You mean when someone doesn't appreciate you as a human subject but sees you as an object, kind of? Yes, yes. And they're very uh, embedded in that, completely wedded to seeing you only as an object and not as a human being. Well, your first thing would be to run the other way, of course. (laughs) Okay. Not try to <laughs> next, next, next <laughs> not try to convince. <laughs> you know, I saw this movie with Liz Taylor, and I always remember she said, "I'm me," <laughs> uh-huh. and I thought, "Now that's a great statement. I'm me." <laughs> so you know, that's what you'd have to say. I'm me, and I'm not some object. And uh, you know, this isn't going to go anywhere because. You can't see me as an actual right. person. What if you stupidly marry someone who can't see you as a human being, never will, this just never, ever going to happen? And then what if your children with them cannot see you as a human being either? What do you do? And I was reading in your book, How to Be an Adult, and you write about maintaining your personal boundaries. And you write, and this is a quote, maintain a bottom line, a limit to how many times you will allow someone to say no, lie, disappoint, or betray you before you will admit the painful reality and move on to mutual work or separate tables. So what if it's your children who are doing that, you know, and they're, you know, you consider them absolutely essential to your life? What do you do? The first thing I would do, uh, and of course the statement that you read certainly fits for, like, husband, friend, you know, whoever, adult. So, you know, this idea of try to work it out or or separate, I get that certainly fits for adults. But when it comes to children, my first step would be grieving and right in front of them. This is how sad I feel when you treat me that way. And have them look directly at your sadness. I wouldn't try to convince them to treat you differently. I wouldn't try to whip them into shape. I wouldn't try to explain anything. All the explanations are useless, but the feeling has your authentic feeling with no with with no plan or wish to retaliate that direct expression of your sadness of your anger and of your fear to whatever extent you could feel yourself 
able to show that to them, that is what I consider the most courageous and most appropriate response because it's another example of how you're being hurt or disappointed and so forth, and you're showing your grief about it. It's not so that you can manipulate them into self, into pity for you. It's only, and, and you would even say that, uh, don't I, interpret this as... I think you're talking as, about authentic human suffering. Just be real with it. Yeah, yeah showing the authentic human suffering that you're going through. And, um, you know, it's a rare person who isn't going to be touched in some way by that. Well, so anyway, maybe I'm being too uh, Pollyanna or something and seeing it that way, but that is um, how I would respond. That is a beautiful answer, and thank you. And we only have a couple minutes left. I do. This would happen, and the time would fly by, and only I only got through like 10% of my questions for you. But I wanted to give you a moment to tell people, my listeners, you know what you have coming up, where they can find out more about you. I've, I've mentioned your website, Dave Rico, D-A-V-E-R-I-C-H-O. But can you tell people, you know, if you have other books, if you're lecturing, classes, et cetera? Okay. Uh, first of all, going to the website will help you, uh, will show you all the books on the book page. I also have a, a page with a streaming video, a talk I gave at the local hospital on the five A's. That's free, and you can watch that. Uh, my next two books, one is coming out next month. It's called... When Catholic Means Cosmic, and it's how to update your Catholic view so you have a more cosmic sense of it, and it's from Paula's Press. And then my other book is coming out toward the end of the year. That's called You Are Not What You Think, The Ego-Less Path to Self-Esteem and Generous Love. The topic of that book, which is from Shambhala, is how to deflate one's big fat ego. Wow, I can't wait to read that one. That sounds amazing. And Dave, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm really grateful. My it's pleasure. really wonderful. And um, I want to encourage listeners to go to DaveRico.com and to go to Amazon, look for your books. And pre- are your books available for pre-order? Yes. Okay, so thank you again for being on, Dave. Thank you. Take care, Tracy. So um, join us next week. This is an amazing episode. Thanks a bunch, and see you next week. This has been Tracy L. Slatten on the Independent Artists and Thinkers Network. Thanks for joining us. Come back next week.